Thanks for listening to Resilient History, the podcast that explores forgotten, ignored, and partially told history. I'm your host, Gordon Black. Richard Overy is a history professor at Exeter University in Southwest England and a specialist in the Second World War. He's authored or been a contributing editor to close to 30 books, as well as articles and television programs about the Second World War. He's a fellow of the Royal Historical Society, King's College, and the British Academy. Thank you for taking the time to join Resilient History. Welcome. Thank you. You're one of the leading scholars of World War II. What led you at this point to cast the war as an imperial conflict? The main answer, I think, is for a long time, I've not been very satisfied with the conventional way we treat the Second World War. Um, There are a great many very good histories which deal with that period between 1939 and 45. almost always as if it's a European balance of power conflict again. And for a long time, I've, I've wanted to frame the Second World War differently because it did seem to me that the, the critical factor linking all three Axis powers together was their desire to build territorial empires that mirrored the empires that other states already had. And thinking, in other words, that you know the age of empire would still go on, and what happens by the end of the 1930s, of course, is that Britain and France, the other two big empires, have had enough. The risks seem too great also to their empires. Um, and so they launch a war against their most dangerous enemy. Um, but the rest of the war unfolds, really, as the effort of the other powers to stop Germany, Japan and Italy building new territorial empires. 1945, that was what they achieved. Why do you think it is that this conventional narrative that you've just described has been so largely established over time that other historians have not examined the connection that you have made in your new book, Blood and Ruins? Well, it's a good question. Uh, I think it is because people are so focused, or have been so focused for so long on the on the foreign policy aspects, Versailles, aftermath, diplomatic arguments from the 20s and 30s and so on, the crisis between Germany, Britain and France, which seemed to be the central issue. And I, I think it's taken quite a long time for military historians to begin to think more globally. Uh, but imperial historians, of course, have been doing that for a long time. And, and looking at the, the history of the world from the late 19th century onwards, as if we're now talking about a global history. And what I've done in Blood and Ruins, I hope, is to place the Second World War much more clearly into its global setting rather than simply a renewal of the conflict of the First World War. At the end of the First World War, of course, you had two schools of thought, the in fact, maybe even three, what the French wanted at the end of the war, what the British wanted, and what the Americans wanted. And in some ways, it tilted towards the, the French punishment of Germany. And I kind of, I think Britain was somewhere in between the American point of view and the French point of view. In some ways, the inability to revolve the concept of empire then create the circumstances that would lead to these three countries seeking to build their territorial empires. No, exactly. I think the end of the First World War is a, is a critical period. I mean, some historians see the end of the First World War as, you know, the beginning of the modern age, you know, the birth of new nations and so on and so on. But I think that the end of the First World War was much more mark, if you like, in the long history of, of European imperialism, of course, because Britain and France became bigger empires. Uh, they took over territories from the Turkish Empire, from uh, the, the old German Empire and so on. And although they were mandates from the League of Nations, they wanted to paint them pink and green on the map so that they looked like part of the empire. But two of the victor powers, Japan and Italy, 
felt cheated by this. They felt that Versailles ignored what they deserved after being allies in the First World War. Uh, the Japanese in particular resented being pushed back out of China again. The Italians had been promised territory in the old Ottoman Empire. They didn't get that. And then, of course, there was Germany stripped of its colonies, and not only stripped, but told at the Versailles Settlement, through the Versailles Settlement, that they were not people who ought to have colonies. They were, they were not to be trusted as colonizers. Uh, many Germans saw this as a really calculated insult because they saw themselves as, as a, a super-civilized people who ought to have the right to empire, uh, as other states did. So the three Axis powers... They go on to shape the 1930s and the Second World War. Well, the three powers that emerged from Versailles thinking, well, empires are right for some people, but you know, we would like to have one too. Do you think it's important to give greater attention to Japan's invasion of Manchuria and Italy's effort to colonize Ethiopia and Libya? Why is it that these two actions, although they were addressed by the League of Nations in the 1930s, they tend to be subtexts of the the later efforts by Germany in Czechoslovakia or Austria or Poland? Yeah, I think it's a very Western orientation. I mean, I think that uh, always the view in 1930s too that Italy and Japan were were lesser threats. Um, uh, Italy you know, was too weak really to menace the British and French, the Japanese. Well, in the West, there was not a lot known about the Japanese or Japanese ambitions. But Germany is central to the story, you know, the start of the First World War onwards. And I think that that's why, you know, at the time and since, people have focused much more on the, the threat posed by Germany rather than Japan and Italy. But in fact, if you look at Japan's aggression in China, it is quite extraordinary. I mean, China was a sovereign state, <laughs> member of the League of Nations, major member of the League of Nations. And the Japanese didn't just seize Manchuria. Something I think many historians overlook is that they went on expanding uh, into northern China, surrounded Beijing, into Inner Mongolia. Uh, before war broke up with uh, China in 1937, Japan was well established right across northern and eastern China, areas you know, of Japanese, effective Japanese imperialism. Uh, in the case of uh, Mussolini, Mussolini uh, conquers Ethiopia. Then he begins to turn his sights towards Egypt and the Sudan. He begins to think about building a larger Mediterranean empire and um, doesn't think that he's going to be opposed. He thinks actually that winning in Ethiopia and you know, nobody really doing very much, just like the Japanese in Manchuria, opens the door to being able to establish themselves as regional powers. And that's the lesson, it seems to me, that, that Hitler and uh, his regime take as well. Not only we can do it, we should do it. In both instances of what Italy did in North Africa and what Japan did in China, that, that was a very brutal episode of imperialism, uh, which you write about in detail in your book. Yeah, they were both very brutal indeed. Um, because, uh, partly I think because the Japanese and the Italians saw the people they were conquering as basically you know, imperial subjects, people who were going to have to, were going to be ruled. This was colonial space. When it was, it wasn't colonial space. China and Ethiopia were um, independent sovereign states. And what the Japanese and the Italians did in their treatment of the Chinese and the Ethiopians was to adapt, if you like, the model of violent imperialism from before 1914. You know, other states had treated uh, native peoples, in inverted commas, that way. They would treat the Chinese and the Ethiopians the same. 
And of course, the models for that type of imperialism were Britain, France, Holland, Belgium, etc. In some ways, you have the creation of these new order empires, as you call them, copying the old order <laughs> empires and the old order empires not quite understanding or taking what they see as a higher moral ground that this is not acceptable, but not really doing much about it in the 1930s. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's a paradox, of course, because, you know, they complain about the, the Italians and the, the Japanese and the Germans trying to build territorial empires, while they have big territorial empires of their own, which they, you know, desperate to protect, and, and which they had acquired much of it between 1870 and 1914 with a considerable level of violence. I mean, even in the 1920s, you know, the French and the British and their empires were able to do things they wouldn't have dared to do elsewhere, treating the people as subjects, um, not observing the rule of law, uh, using in many cases extreme levels of, uh, disproportionate levels of violence and so on. So yes, of course, that's exactly what the Axis powers were looking at and imitating. There's, of course, no irony here that at a time when these new order imperial powers are copying this level of violence, the two principal European empires, Britain and France, they're out of money. They're pretty broke, but they still want to hold on to their empires, right? Well, they see the empire, in fact, as a, as a source of their salvation, because in both cases, they fall back on the empire during the economic crisis. They trade much more, they invest much more, they jealously guard the resources they've got to, and they have access to large percentage of the world's natural resources. So yes, without the empires, of course, they might have faced uh, you know, a, a greater crisis in the 1930s. And that's exactly what fuels Japanese, Italian, and German belief that if you controlled an area and its resources, if you had some kind of sealed block, like the Frank block or the Sterling block, that would be a way of protecting your economy and protecting your population, as well as making yourself into a great power. How do you cast the role of the United States in this time in history? Well, it's very important because it's precisely because the United States chose isolation, even though it was led in the 1930s by an internationalist, by Roosevelt, cut themselves off because they felt they'd burnt their fingers in the First World War and didn't want to become involved in that again. Um, after 1930, they were trying to protect their own economy and solve their own domestic social problems, which were very profound. And, and the last thing they wanted was to, uh, was to risk international war. But precisely that, of course, is what encourages the other New Order empires to expand. I think America, America is potentially the most powerful state and economy in the world, but it's, going, you know, it's not going to do anything very much at all. In fact, the more they do what they do, the more evidence it is that the United States is not going to intervene. The neutrality laws basically cut America off from any kind of intervention. I hate to ask uh, a historian to speculate, but if you would indulge me for a moment, if Japan had made the decision not to bomb Pearl Harbor, could things have turned out significantly differently? Do you think the United States would have remained neutral? Very good question. It's, I mean, it, it is you know, impossible to say. Um, I mean, Roosevelt, really, really reluctant to take America into war. Uh, some of his advisors wrote in their memoirs later that they thought he probably would have declared war by March 1942 or the summer of 1942. 
but we can't be sure of that either. Um, and the problem really was that the Japanese now saw the United States as the main barrier to establishing their new economic and territorial bloc. And so you had to find some quick way to get the Americans, you know, to neutralize the Americans. You bomb Pearl Harbor, you build your Pacific perimeter, and you think the Americans lack the will and the military means to penetrate it. And, of course, then we're back to a misjudgment. Of course, the United States had already taken some actions over, I think, scrap metal exports and oil exports to Japan. So they weren't entirely not engaged, but certainly were trying to stay out of the war. Self-determination was a a big part of the discussion at Versailles and in the post-World War I era. Why do you think Britain and France were so reluctant to embrace that for their own territories that they controlled? Well, it's it's about power, too. I mean, they were both global powers. Britain has often described in the 1920s as the, you know, as the first of the superpowers, which is slightly misplaced. She lacked the military means, really, to export that power effectively. But they were both global empires. They uh, had access to huge resources. They were huge trading empires. Um, and they wanted to, to protect that. And self-determination, you could have limited forms, I suppose, of self-determination, but for many of the nationalists in the Middle East, in India, and so on, what they wanted was independence. And, you know, that the British and French felt that, that they couldn't extend. They just it all up by saying, oh, well, these people not actually uh, ready for self-government. You know, these are people still, you know, the savage stage, etc., etc. You know, all kinds of, of special pleading as to why it, it, you know, didn't suit them. But it didn't suit them in the end because they wanted to be imperial powers. So they go back to the the racist trope about these societies, these people are not yet quite evolved enough to be able to lead a proper civilized state. Yeah. And and of course, there is still some sense of uh, that continuing right into the 50s and 60s as colonies attempt to gain independence from the French or British or other empires. Yes. I mean, my book ends in, the title ends in 1945, but that's only because I couldn't really find a date that the publisher would be happy with. Uh, and it could end it after the Second World War. Because, you know, the last part of the book is about the violence that goes on for 20 years or more after 1945 in defense of the old colonial empires in Indonesia, in Malaya, in Kenya, in Algeria, famously, of course, in Vietnam. There's a long history of violence, which, again, I think often gets left out because we focus so much on the Cold War and the European crisis. Um, But that 20 years of a very bloody, messy decolonization brings the whole imperial project really to an end. comes to an end in 45 for Germany, Japan and Italy, and it's never revived in in either of those countries, any of those countries. But for Britain, France, Belgium and Netherlands, it's it's a sudden moment of truth. It's not going to work. What about the Soviet Union? You made mention of uh, its policies. Can you talk a little more about the Soviet Union as an empire? Well, I mean, it is popularly seen as an empire. I think that's very misleading because it isn't the same as the other territorial empires, and it wasn't after forty-five. The point I've made, because I've been asked this question quite a number of times, the point I always make is that, you know, what Stalin and the Lenin and Stalin and the communist leadership wanted was to make the world communist. And so the areas that they took over are before 1939, 
their domination of Eastern Europe um, post-1945 was in order to make more of the world communist, not to build colonies. I mean, we can talk about the semantics of it, like people might think it looks like an empire, but it seemed to me that we then misunderstand what it is that the Soviet Union wants to do. You know, it wants an end to capitalist imperialism, and it wants a world of communism. For an educator listening to this podcast, what would you say are key things to understand, to gain a more nuanced uh, understanding about the role of imperialism in World War II? I think the important thing is to see the background properly, to understand that what happens in the Second World War is really rooted in 50 years of, uh, of crude territorial expansion carried out before 1914 by almost all the European powers and by Japan, continued on through the 1920s and 1930s again, as I've said, often violently. And so we get the Hitlers and Mussolinis and looking at this and saying, well, you know, we're, we're weak powers. How do you become a strong power? You become a strong power by having a territorial empire. And so we need to get one too. And I think that will put the crises of the 1930s into context and get people to take Manchuria and Ethiopia perhaps more seriously. Then when the war breaks out, of course, at one level, it looks like an old-fashioned European war again, you know, another, you know, repeat of the First World War. But the critical thing here is that it really was... It was a war to stop Germany from expanding territorially by powers that were empires themselves uh, and fought as empires. The British recruited widely from the empire, fought an imperial war. And then you find that the other three major allies, the Soviet Union, the United States and China, are all anti-imperial powers. And I think what's important about the Second World War is to see that tension that goes on right through the 45, where imperial powers are being threatened, well, the Axis powers directly, Britain and France, uh, uh, their empires are you know, seriously under threat. And the, the powers that are emerging are powers that want a new global order without empire. And I think that you know, rather than the focus on the European conflict, the Eastern Front, the coming of the Cold War and so on, I think that we need to focus more globally on the nature of the geopolitical order. In your book, you address the efforts, sometimes they seem a little desperate uh, by Britain and by France to try and reshape the dialogue at the United Nations post-World War II. Was that, again, a reluctance of those two countries to acknowledge that the dialogue itself has moved beyond imperialism, but they are still holding on to it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was a rearguard action that they fought. And it was hampered, of course, by the fact that, that in Britain and France, there was a, a very substantial proportion of the population which shared the view that empire was finished, really, and that we didn't, didn't, didn't need an empire. And indeed, for much of the period before 1939, it was the elites, uh, economic, political, military, who benefited from empire. Most French and British people never went to the empire. Um, and, you know, the only way they knew about the empire was collecting postage stamps. And here, after 1945, I think... Uh, what they were most concerned with was now building proper welfare democracy, and the empire mattered to them much less. So, in fact, you know, the really good action put up by the, the elites in both countries uh, had two problems. The problem of internationalism in the United Nations on one hand, but also the problem that there was no real consensus at home for hanging on to the empire at all costs. 
but there does seem to be a tension between what the elites in those two countries might have wanted and what the public wanted. And in some ways, we still see evidence of that today, that there is this reluctance or a nostalgia, I think is the word you have used, to talk about the days of empire as being a, a time of glory and prosperity and so on. Well, there is now. I mean, I think in the British case, uh, I mean, for a long time, empire, you know, wanted to more or less disappeared in the 1960s. You know, nobody really talked about it very much. And it's really only in the last 20 or 25 years there's been a nostalgic revival of the idea of empire and the good things that the British did. And it's a paradox, really, because it's precisely at the time that a great many historians and social scientists and so on are, are examining racism and its past history and so on, are examining all the things that we might regard as unacceptable about empire. Perhaps it's because of these two divergent strands, if you like, one you know, nostalgic, one critical. And, but that's become an important uh, element in, in some ways in modern British identity. And when Brexit and leaving Europe, one of the things that always hovering in the background was the idea that somehow, you know, Britain could reconstruct a British Commonwealth, you know, and get back to, you know, an empire it had lost. And we, and we know how that's working out. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> one last final question here. The fight against the Axis powers has been traditionally characterized as defense of liberty, protection of human rights, and put simply, ensuring freedom. Is there justification at this point for any historian or any history textbook or historical account in giving the Allied powers kind of the higher moral ground? Well, it's a complex question. I mean, the real problem was the alliance between the Soviet Union, the United States, and Britain. It's a paradoxical alliance, a communist state, a liberal democracy, uh, an empire. Um, and they come together only because they are committed to defeating Hitler and um, ending Mussolini's imperialism and Japanese imperialism. The moral high ground is difficult when you're talking about the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union defeated fascism, for which you know the world is, uh, has been grateful. But on the other hand, Stalin's uh, system ran concentration camps, uh, involved in mass deportations, uh, suspended all you know, civil and human rights, that we, as we understand it, civil and human rights, terrorized the population, waged war against Finland, occupied half of Poland illegally, and so on and so on. So there are a lot of problems in polishing the Allies' halo because you've got the Soviet Union there. Also, Britain and the United States, you know, there are, there are things about their war efforts which um, we'd have to relativize morally, whether it's a lack of civil rights for uh, black Americans or whether it's the British treatment of India. Now, this doesn't make them the same as the Axis, it does mean, I think, that we need to recognize that morality is relative in war, that people do things in war which they wouldn't otherwise do. Unpleasantness is not just a, a feature of the enemy. We have to look hard at what we're doing, too. Sometimes, of course, that's particularly hard for people to acknowledge that somehow the behavior of their country is perhaps on par with the behavior of the enemy and the enemy's soldiers. There's no doubt that um, in terms of war crimes and crimes against humanity, the German and Japanese empires in particular, of course, didn't have rivals. You know, they behaved atrociously. 
Uh, these were toxic military institutions by the end of the war. Um, but it, it is indeed difficult, I think, difficult in the United States. For example, when it was revealed that U.S. servicemen were responsible for a lot of rapes in Europe and Japan, there was a big out, outcry. You know, that's not, that's not possible. You know, in Britain, when uh, historians tried to highlight what the British did in the counterinsurgency campaigns after 1945, which bore a lot of resemblance to what the Japanese and Germans were doing, a big outcry from part of the public saying, no, no, we don't believe that. We don't want to know that. One thing I hope I've done in Blood and Bruins is just to get people to look back at the war honestly from both sides and, you know, accept that that's what it was like. And perhaps to learn some lessons. Clearly, Putin would have benefited from reading it. You know, war is uniquely damaging to both sides. And you know, very quickly, your normative morality breaks down. And that's, I hope, a lesson that everyone will take from my book. That was history professor Richard Overy. I asked him what his current project is. I wanted to have a rest from the Second World War, but I'm writing a small book called Why War, which is looking at the way in which uh, modern disciplines, political science, biology, psychology, anthropology, have tried to explain why war has been characteristic of human society for as far back as we can go. And I'm enjoying that. It is a rest from the Second World War, uh, but it's still about war. Thanks for listening to Resilient History. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe. And do let your friends know. If you've got comments, use the comment section to let me know of ideas or suggestions for future interviews. Resilient History is written and produced by me, Gordon Blank. I'm a high school history teacher. Logo designed by Francie Petraka. And theme music is written and performed by Aka Beyond.